listening to sermon audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more sermon audio, visit redtreechurch.com. Father, you are so good to us. We ask this morning that you would speak, that we would be slow, that we would be quiet, that the worries of this world, the things that trip us up, the things that catch us, the things that um, even right now want to absorb our time, our energy, our attention. We ask that you would cast those aside and for these next few moments we would be present with you. We ask that we would be quiet enough and slow enough that we would actually hear what you have to say. Holy Spirit, speak to us this morning. Illuminate your text, illuminate your gospel, convict us, teach us, remind us. And as we study your word, we ask that um, the thoughts of our heart, that the, the words of our mouth, they would be pleasing to you. Jesus, we love you, we trust you, so we pray these things boldly in your name. Amen. Good morning, church. I am stoked for this. We are doing something a, a little different. Um, if you recall... We, uh, we uh, are taking a pause from Mark during, during this month, right? So kind of, we do this a couple times a year. Most of the time, if you, if you know this, Red Tree Churches, our family of churches, are synced up in the sermon series we do. And we've been going through Mark verse by verse. And uh, every now and then, a few times a year, we hit pause and we give each of our churches the freedom to kind of discern what are some things we need to talk about specifically. And so after Easter is one of those times, so all three of our churches are doing a different little mini series right now. Uh, This is a great time of year, on a side note, to to get on the app or get on the website and actually hear some of the stuff that that God is leading our other pastors to and some of the stuff our other churches are working through. The Gathering in Mumbai is going through a series on on, uh, gospel-centered marriage right now. Mid-Cities is going through a series on uh, gospel worship, and we're, we're talking about gospel reconciliation today. And so here's, here's what we're going to do. This is going to feel a little different than a normal Red Tree sermon, but I think it's going to be really good for us. I, I basically had one teaching that was way too long, and so I broke it into two parts. And so we're going we're gonna to present the problem today, and I'm only going to give you like half the solution. So it's not going to feel, it's not going to feel very, uh, it's not going to feel very satisfying walking out today, but I think that'll be good. I think it'll give us something to actually chew on and meditate on this week, and then next week we'll come back and we'll fully reconcile ourselves to the teaching of Scripture. That was a bad pun. I'm really sorry for that. Even in the moment, I thought, don't say that. And then I did, and now it's too late. But let's be honest. I'm doing better than Dan did on Welcome. I'm sorry, Dan. (laughs) Oh, man, that was so mean. That was his first time. He's never going to want to do it again. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we're doing this series on reconciliation. I, and this is, this is kind of strange to me as, I was, as, as our, all our elders were praying over, man, what, what should we do with this time? This was the very first thing that popped in my head, the first time I prayed over it. And then I spent probably a good three weeks going, that's weird. I don't actually think that's what our church needs to talk about for a couple of weeks 
but I couldn't get away from it. The more, the more I prayed, the more I studied, God kept bringing me back to this idea of, man, how does the church handle conflict? How do we step into conflict and broken relationship in a way that actually represents Christ well? And so I think, I think this is good for us. Even, even if I think a lot of us in this room think we have a handle on this, the more I've spent time praying over it, the more I really think this is good for us to meditate on for a couple weeks. Um, you're going to have to excuse me. Like I, My iPad reset while we were in worship, and I don't have my notes up right now, which is super embarrassing. So I'm going to do this while I talk. Um, but anyway, we are... Um, I think this will be really good for us. So what, what we're actually going to do is we're going we're to walk through a really long story in Judges. Now, I don't know how much you guys have actually studied Judges on your own. It's actually, it's a pretty, it's a pretty hard book to preach through. Judges is the kind of book that um, it, it presents a lot of theological problems, probably, probably more so than the normal book you would study in a sermon context. Not only is it an Old Testament book, right? So it's pre-Christ, it's pre-cross, pre-kind of justification through faith. But it also represents this really tumultuous time in church history that, um, if, if I'm being real, it's, it's kind of just brutal to deal with it. The sort of things that you see in the book of Judges... Um, they're just, it's just really petty and violent and sinful. In fact, we kind of like this, and this is where it gets weird. We tend to think of judges as kind of the, the superheroes of scripture, right? Like the judges are kind of Sunday school fodder if you've spent a lot of time like growing up in more traditional church. But if you actually look at the book of Judges, only one judge who gets a story, some of them just get like half a sentence, but only one judge who actually gets a story is presented in any kind of positive light in Judges. And that's Deborah, the girl judge. Come on, represent ladies. Little, just a little bit of godliness in the Old Testament coming from them ladies. But the judges, for the most part, are what we would consider terrible, awful people. Now, this kind of presents some weird tension because the judges are the people, in, especially in, in the, the historical books of the Old Testament, who are actively anointed with the power of the Holy Spirit, which is crazy. And not only that, like if you read in Hebrews, which is one of the best Old Testament commentaries we have in the New Testament, you see that the, several of the judges are actually included in the Hall of Faith. When the New Testament writers were using the Old Testament to talk about God's work of justification through faith, they pointed back to guys like Gideon, who were judges. And yet, if you go back and you actually walk through this book, it's disturbing. It not only pushes against our modern sensibilities, as most ancient books do, but Judges specifically pushes some really hard theological buttons for us that are actually really painful to deal with. Gideon is in the hall of faith in Hebrews, and yet Gideon is an idolater and an adulterer. I mean, he actually actively leads God's people away from biblical worship and into idolatry that leads them into their next season of oppression. So God anoints him and uses him as a judge to free Israel, and then in his sin and his blasphemy, he leads Israel back into oppression. 
So that's kind of the story of Judges. Judges gives us kind of the, the term that theologians use is Judges introduces us to the cycle of sin, where Israel is kind of in this in and out of sinning and then calling to God to God and repentance and then receiving kind of forgiveness and restoration from God because of their covenant with Moses and then falling back into sin and starting the cycle over again. We see that over and over and over and over in Judges. And it's, it's really good, if I'm being honest with you. It, it, it gives us this really blunt and kind of extreme analogy for what faith looks like today, kind of how we experience, to some extent, our abuse of God's grace, right? Like how we, we push against his forgiveness. But that, all that to say, we're going to walk through a long story in Judges. So we're going to be in Judges 14 and 15 today. You can turn there. If you need a Bible, we have house Bibles on the edge of each row. We want to make sure, guys, we, we really value God's Word here at Red Tree. We want to make sure you have access to this. Um, I know you're like, it's 2018, we all have smartphones. But there's something really powerful about reading God's Word that I, I would encourage you guys like, to actually grab a Bible and, and look at it. It's, it's really powerful. Um, so that's, that's going on. Um, if we have these house Bibles here, if you need one, just ask for one, like just look awkwardly at the people at the end of the row and they'll hand you one. Um, so, so, so I set all that up. You can turn to judges. Let, let me talk a little bit about reconciliation here. This is not working today and that's okay. Here's the thing when we talk about reconciliation, every single one of us in this space has a good theology of forgiveness right? We know what the scripture teaches about forgiveness. Forgiveness is so central to the actual gospel teaching. We've all heard that and talked about that a hundred times. The, the center of the gospel is that Christ forgives you of your sin. You can experience reconciliation to God, right? That's, that's what we proclaim when we tell the gospel message is that Sin has separated you from God, but you can be reconciled. Well, the problem is that theology can get a little disconnected from our practice. Because there's a lot of really, really blunt teachings about forgiveness in the New Testament that we tend to skip over. We, we, we understand fully this idea that in order for us to actually experience the gospel, there has to be radical, powerful forgiveness and reconciliation. That's what God does. He draws us from death to life through forgiving our sins, right? But we forget passages like, oh, I don't know, Jesus' own teaching, where he says, well, no, you, you forgive and you forgive and you forgive no matter how many times the offense is repeated. And, and you hear Jesus' teaching really quick in the actual Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, where he says, hey, just so you know, if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. Whoa! Back that train up for a second, Jesus. Jesus actually says that multiple times in the gospel. He says that when he delivers the Lord's Prayer. He says that when he gives the parable of the unmerciful servant. He says that in, in one of his general teachings in, in the center of Matthew. Jesus says this multiple times. If you forgive you'll be forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness, forgiveness will be withheld from you. That's intense. That pushes on some of our understanding of the gospel, right? I thought forgiveness of God was a free gift. I thought it was readily available through faith. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why we skip over those passages. <laughs> they make us uncomfortable. 
But man, there's something there. There's something weighty there we need to talk about. Jesus is saying that there is something about the, the experience of the gospel. There is something about kingdom life that is so impactful that it will cause you to mirror that and give that same treatment to other people. And if you aren't, that should give you pause. That should, that should slow you down and go, wait a minute. If I'm not forgiving people, if I'm not living a life of active reconciliation, and by the way, Jesus does not make it easy. The sort of people he talks about forgiving are your deepest enemies. The people who are abusing you, your oppressors, the people who are wronging you, the people who are distorting justice and injuring you, the people who are hurting those you love. Jesus says that is who you offer forgiveness to. That is who you reconcile yourself to. The measure you used will be measured against you. That's weighty. I think this is probably worth a little bit of our time and our attention, right? So turn with me to Judges 14. We're going to read about one of the famous ones. We could have picked one of the judges that gets one sentence, but that would have been super boring, right? This guy had a bunch of kids. I don't know. That's it. Sermon over. (laughs) One of them says that. It's like so-and-so judged Israel. He had 30 kids. They rode on 30 donkeys. The end. I feel like there's so much more to that story I need to know. (laughs) So we're in Judges 14. We're looking at the story of Samson. Now, again, if you've had any Sunday school training, you're pretty familiar with this story, right? Samson is the Superman of the Old Testament. He uses Jesus to get super strength and beat up the baddies, right? Uh, I, want, I, want us, I want us to give maybe a little closer look at this. So we're going to read kind of over the course of several chapters. And so we'll read some, we'll summarize some, we'll read some, we'll summarize some, right? So, so here's the thing you need to know about Samson to set it up. The time of the judges is a chaotic time in Israel. We already talked about that. They have no king. They have no unified government. They're supposed to be unified under the worship at the tabernacle, but they're not. They're really divided tribally and culturally and by family. They go to war with everyone around them, including themselves. It's it's a really brutal time in Israel's history that's pretty chaotic. In the midst of that, God appears to a couple. He gives a vision to a woman and says, hey, you're going to have a son. He's going to be a judge over Israel. He's going to free you from Philistine oppression. It's one of the non-Jewish tribes that are living in the land, right? Where they're going to free you from this oppression. I need you to set him aside for ministry from birth. He's going to live his entire life fulfilling a Nazarite vow, which is, is this thing given in, in the Levitical law that's essentially a vow, a, sh- a short period of time that you can live a more strict lifestyle for the purpose of setting aside yourself for, for kingdom work, to, to glory. It's essentially like a, a free will offering of, of lifestyle for a season. And so to be a Nazarite, you have to abstain from anything involving grapes. It's not just you can't drink. No, no grape anything. No grape Kool-Aid. No grapeseed oil in your cooking. No, no nothing. No communion juice. Can't do it. No grapes, you can't cut your hair, you have to let your hair grow, and you can't touch anything that would make you ceremonially unclean. Even a family member that dies, right? Your brother dies, you have to skip the funeral because you're under a Nazarite vow. So Samson is to live his entire life 
under this Nazarite vow, is what, is what his parents are told. So they go, awesome, not our problem, it's his. So they have the kid, they dedicate him to that lifestyle, and he grows up that way. And, and if, you, if you learn anything about Samson reading his story, it's just, it's just really complicated. Because Samson is God's anointed man for a task. And yet Samson is a dirtbag. <laughs> I mean, he's pretty much just like, the judges are pretty bad. Samson is the worst judge. Like, easily the worst out of all of them. So he gets a little older. He wants to get married, and he doesn't want to marry a Jewish woman. He wants to marry a Philistine woman. And his parents are like, why? That's kind of not what we're supposed to do. That's sinful. And he's like, come on. I want to marry a Philistine girl. And they go, okay, fine. So they travel down. And by the way, at this point, remember, the Philistines are oppressing Israel. They've conquered them. We're picking up in, in, in chapter 14. And we're just going to start in the first verse here and read for a couple, a couple sentences. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among your own people that you must go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. For at that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Now this presents us with a really interesting theological problem that I'm really just going to ask you guys to trust me on and set it aside for our purposes today. Because what essentially is happening here is that Samson is in sin, and he's going to continue in sin pretty much till he dies. But the scripture tells us that God is sovereignly using this for his larger purpose. Now that, it just presents some theological tension you need to work through. What I'm going to ask you guys to trust me with this morning is just this. God does that sometimes. That's a thing, right? Like, in fact, the term Messiah, anointed one of God, is used in reference to King Cyrus and, like, who conquered the, Israels and, the Israelites and destroyed Jerusalem and, and things like that. God uses sinners in his sovereign plan. And so I, I need you just to kind of reconcile that right off the bat. That just because, essentially, just because God is anointing this and is using Samson does not mean he approves of the following actions. Does that make sense? Okay. So his parents relent. They decide to go find him a Philistine wife. They're traveling down there. At, at some point, as they're wandering along, Samson encounters a lion and goes, hey, you know what? I think I'll just rip this thing to pieces with my bare hands, as you do. So he does. <laughs> Rips it apart and then keeps going like, dang, that was cool. <laughs> they go down there. They negotiate the whole thing. They set up the wedding. They go home. On the way down for the actual wedding, as they're wandering along, Samson's like, I remember this one time I totally killed a lion around here. I wonder if its dead, rotting body is still there. So he goes and he finds its dead, rotting body and finds a beehive inside its dead, rotting body and thinks, sweet, free honey. So he grabs some, goes and feeds his parents with the dead lion honey and doesn't tell them where he got it because, you know, Ew. And so they keep going and they go down to the wedding. Now, really quick, just, just kind of put this in your back pocket. I don't know if you noticed this, but he just broke his Nazarite vow, right? He, he desecrated himself. He made himself unclean. He touched a dead body. He just broke his vow. Set that aside. Just keep, keep that in the back of your pocket. So they go to the wedding. 
They party. If you don't know, weddings at this time, it's like a a week-long festival. It's a whole big deal. He doesn't have any friends living in this place because he's a Jewish guy. They're, They're his oppressors. And so they essentially assign groomsmen to Samson. Well, here's some guys that can be your groomsmen. And he's like, sweet. And it immediately sets up a tense situation because Samson doesn't like these guys and they don't like him. But they're at a party together. And so they're partying. And at some point, Samson essentially sets up a bet with these guys. He says, hey, listen, I'm going to give you a riddle. If you can solve my riddle, I'll give you 30 pairs of clothes. But if you can't solve my riddle before the wedding feast is done, you give me 30 pairs of clothes. And they go, done. And so he sets up this riddle involving the lion that he killed, which, by the way, it's not really a riddle. He totally cheated. There's no way to solve the riddle. It's not like a mental game. He's just like, he says it in verse 14. Out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. No one can solve that, Samson. That's not a riddle. You're just messing with those guys. Anyway, he sets this up, and they can't figure it out. As the party goes on, they get more and more frustrated. And so they finally go to the wife and the wife's dad and go, listen, we don't want to give this guy 30 sets of clothes. So tell us the answer to the riddle, or we'll burn you and your family to death. Now, I don't know if you can tell, but this is a little something we call escalation. (laughs) Right? There's a tense situation. There's a conflict. Samson is in a bad position. He has set himself up in conflict with these guys. But now the conflict has escalated. We've gone from a bet, some young guys in their 20s who are probably drinking and partying, to now... Tell us this, or we'll murder you and your family. So, as you would in this situation, the young bride gets the answer to the riddle. She goes and tells the guys. And and they go and tell Samson, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And you know, they were like, that's not really a riddle. You jerk. There's no way we could have solved that. And then uh, in verse 18, we'll pick it up here. Samson says to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Come on. He didn't already think this guy was a jerk. That's, could, you, could you have thought of a meaner way to say that? Uh, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. And in hot anger, he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. So he gets super ticked that they figure out his riddle, and he leaves and murders 30 people and takes their clothes and goes, fine, you won the bet. Here's your clothes. And then he stomps off home, walks out of his wedding, leaves his wife at the altar, essentially, leaves everyone there and stomps off home to pout. Again, just to point this out, the conflict has escalated once again, right? We've now gone from a bet to a threat to murder. He killed 30 people and took their clothes and left their, I'm assuming, their naked dead bodies laying out like he did the lion, right? And then he just stomps off, leaves his wife, and goes home. That's, anyway. <laughs> Starting in verse 1, we're jumping into chapter 15. After some days, at the time of the wheat harvest, it's been a hot minute, if you, if you, if you do the math there, it's been a couple months, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat, and he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber, but her father would not allow him in. 
What Samson essentially says here is he goes home, he calms down, and he thinks, oh, shoot, I married that lady. I need to go back and, and get her. So he gets a young goat, because, you know, that's how you woo over your, your <laughs> conflict with your wife. Hey, babe, see this young goat? I could totally rip it apart for you. I ripped apart a lion. You want to see? So he takes the young goat. He goes back to his father-in-law's house. And he's like, hey, sorry about the whole killing your townsfolk and leaving your daughter at the altar thing. I brought a goat. Where's your daughter? And he's like, oh, this is super awkward, but you uh, left my daughter at the altar, and uh, I had already paid for the wedding, so she married your best man. There's so many things there. <laughs> oh, man, it, if this story wasn't so terrible, it would be hilarious. It's like a, it's like a Coen Brothers dark comedy. You know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like we're, we're yeah, anyway. Her father said, I really thought you utterly hated her. This is verse 2. So I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, this time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So he says, what? You married off my wife to one of them? Oh, now it's not my fault. I mean, I was mad before when I killed 30 people. Okay, yeah, I was mad. But this time, this is totally your fault what I'm about to do. This is on you. So then he goes and he catches 300 foxes and he ties their tails together, and then he sets their tails on fire, and then he lets them loose in the standing grain, the fields where they grow their food. Fields catch on fire, all their food burns up. Really quick, once again, this is escalation, right? You, you married my wife to one of those guys? You did that? I'll tell you what I'm going to do. And I'm, this is totally on you that I'm doing this. I'm going to destroy everyone's food supply in this entire region. Everyone is going to starve. That's on you, Dad. And then he goes and he does it. That's, we don't even have time to talk about how you catch 300 foxes and tie their tails together. <laughs> but he does. In verse 6, the Philistines said, who has done this? Yeah, because, you know, that's all their food. And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of Timnai, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. So he destroys their food supply. They respond by taking his wife and the family and burning them to death and going, you're going to burn our food, we'll burn your family. Kill one of ours, but I don't know what it is. That, that Sean Connery quote you know what I'm talking about, put him in the morgue. I don't know. If I had that on tap, that would have been great, but I didn't. <laughs> This is still in verse eight or seven. Samson said to them, if this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you. And after that, I'll quit. So, and, and by the way, at this point, he just goes essentially on a murder rampage, just wandering around killing people. So they kill, they burn up his family. He burns all their food. They burn up his family and goes, oh, really? You burn my family? That, well, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll show you. So he goes around and kills a bunch of people. And I love that line. After that, I'll stop. So he goes on his murdering spree, kills a bunch of people, and goes, okay, I'm done. This is, this is enough. And he goes and he hides in a cave. The Philistines' response to this is they muster their army. 
And they bring their army up to the Israelites, the section of the Israelites that they've conquered, and they say, give us Samson or we're going to kill all of you. So really quick, can we just back up the story really quick? We started with some young guys making a dumb bet at a wedding. And now we have an army drawn up against God's people threatening to destroy them. That's escalation, right? So the Israelites come to Samson and go, what the heck have you done? Don't you know that we are conquered by the Philistines? You can't just go around killing them because they control us. And Samson's like, hey, it's cool. Just don't kill me. Just tie me up and turn me over to him. So they do. Samson breaks his ropes. He grabs the, bone, the jawbone of a donkey, which essentially looks like a big old axe. And then he just slaughters a thousand people. Kills them all. And then writes a song about it. Verse 16. With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I've struck down a thousand men. And then he throws the jawbone down. You know, it's like this action movie scene. It's like dripping. He's like, and he just walks off into the sunset, right? Do you see this picture? What started with a bet at a wedding ends with a thousand people dead on the ground. That's, that's insane, right? I mean, I'm not alone in that. That's insane. The way they just back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back until it's so out of hand, so out of hand. Now, here's the thing. This story is really intense, right? This is the most extreme example possible. But Scripture does that a lot. It gives us these kind of hyperbolic examples because it speaks to a deeper spiritual truth. Guys, this is always the path of vengeance. Vengeance always escalates. Always. If you justify in your heart the the justice of you getting back at someone, it will always get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse until the next thing you know is a thousand people dead on the floor. And what brought you there? Right? This is, this is what Samson shows us. Samson shows us the life that is pursued, what he would probably call justice, but I would say revenge above all else. Samson got his revenge. By the way, so did the Philistines. We're not going to read it, but the way the story progresses is they set up essentially a, a spy network to capture him, and then when they finally do capture him, they gouge out his eyes, they cut his hair, he loses his strength, which is a whole different thing because he's broken every part of his Nazarite vow up to that point except cutting his hair. But when he cuts his hair, he loses his strength. They gouge out his eyes, they capture him, they take him into slavery, and they use him to turn a grinding mill, right? The guy who burned up their food supply. They use him as a slave to grind their wheat for him. And the story comes to a head when they're having a huge party, and they bring out blind, captured, defeated Samson to mock him. And Satan says, God, let me have vengeance one more time. Let me do this one more time. 
and he pushes over the main support of the building and it collapses and kills 3,000 people in Samson. And that's the end of his story. Do you know what Samson's legacy is? His legacy is found in chapter 16 in verse 30. He bowed with all his strength and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it so that the dead whom he killed in his death were more than those whom he killed during his life. Thus is the legacy of Samson. He got the last word and he killed a bunch of people. Right? How is, how, like, how is that the legacy you actually want? Right? Not that he led his people to, to surrender to Christ, not that he led his people to proper worship or led them out of idolatry or that he taught them justice, that he, that he defeated an unrighteous. No, his legacy is that he got his and he killed them. Right? That is the path of vengeance path that leads to destruction. Always escalates. Always escalates. And where it ends is not where you want it to end. It's not a happy ending to a story. God used it. God used it to give his people freedom. But he used it in spite of Samson. Can you imagine, right? That man, that strength, given over to the purposes of the kingdom instead of given over to himself and his flesh. My goodness. What a different story that could be, right? But that's what it is. I, I, I want you guys, really quick, I want you guys to catch a couple subtle things in this story. And the reason is this. It is very easy to hear a story like this, and it's so hyperbolic that, that we take this story and go, yeah, that's super true. That's, that's about those people who are super vengeful. But, but there are some subtleties in this extreme story that I think will draw it home for us, right? I, w- I want you to look at some of the phrases they use as this thing is escalating. If you look at 15 in, in verse 3, this time I'll be innocent in regard to what I do. He justifies his escalation, right? He says, well, they did this. Therefore, what I'm doing is not wrong, right? And, and the Philistines' response, who has done this? Looking for, for who to blame, right? Like looking for who is the person who's, who's caused the injustice. Look at, my goodness, look at, at verse 7 here. If this is what you do, oh, I swear I'll be avenged on you. And then I'll stop. Which, by the way, he doesn't, Right? You may look at it and go, okay, I'm going to get him back one more time and that'll be enough. That's not how it works. In the cycle of vengeance, the escalating, the back and forth, the tit for tat, there is no enough in that. There's never a point where you jab that person hard enough and you go, done. Now they know. Now they know they wronged me. Now we're, now we're even. It just goes back and forth. It escalates and escalates and escalates. And it only ends in one thing. It ends in destruction and death. That's, that's the way of vengeance. I would humbly submit to us that the way of vengeance, as I would coin it, 
is much more dear to our hearts than we're willing to admit. I would say that we are much more spiteful, vengeful people than we're willing to say in polite company. We may not do what Samson does, right? Like we may not like go out and catch 300 foxes. But we find ways to get our vengeance in. We treat people differently. We shun them. We talk bad about them behind their back. We we treat them with a cold shoulder, right? I mean, like, I tell you what's the Some of us, if we're honest, we would never actively do something to harm our enemy. But man, if we heard something bad happen to him, we'd be like, eh, we had it coming. Right? Can, can I really quick, can I tell you what that is? That's just the coward's vengeance. You desire vengeance on that person, you're just too cowardly to act it out. So when something bad happens to them, you go, yeah, they had it coming. Good. You kind of revel in that a little bit. Or maybe, to take it a step deeper, maybe you just decide, that person doesn't matter to me. I'm going to cut them off. I'm going to close them off. That relationship's toxic. It's done. It's over. And you just try and stamp apathy over that. Beloved, that's a form of vengeance. To just say, you've wronged me. You hurt me. Therefore, you don't get access to me anymore. I'm going to punish you with that. It's vengeance. It's seeking to find your own justice. Beloved, we're vengeful people for one reason and one reason only. We live in an unjust world. People wrong you and they hurt you. The world is cursed and broken. And people do terrible, awful things. People are dishonest. People are mean. People are backbiting. People are angry. People are abusive. People are violent. People kill. And we see that happen over and over and time and time again. And something in us goes, that's not right. There is a right. There is a wrong. There is such a thing as justice. And this world doesn't seem to carry it out, so I have to find my own. That's the heart of vengeance. It starts with this desire to go, I've been wronged. My wrong needs to be made right. Did anyone see that? Right? Did anyone see that? What that guy just did? That's wrong. Well, no one's stepping up, so I'm going to step up. I'm going to let them know that's wrong through whatever methodology you choose, right? Whether you're bold enough to be outward in your vengeance or whether you are not and your vengeance needs to be passive and needs to be quiet. We all do that. Beloved, there's no end to that that you want. That's not the way of our King. That's not the way of our sweet Jesus. And here's the thing. We all know that. We all know that. Every single one of us. In our hearts, we, we know the reason the gospel is so appealing is that Christ didn't demand justice of us. He didn't avenge himself upon us. He forgave us. He reconciled us to himself. We know that. We celebrate that. We praise him for that. We love him for that. And yet, in our own lives, in our own lives, we pursue our own justice. We demand rights for our wrongs. We demand the balances be balanced. We demand that our ledgers be fulfilled, right? We keep an account 
of the actions of those who are in our lives. We have our ledger and we write down our names and we account for their actions, good and bad. And when the ledger is out of balance, we seek to balance it. We do. That's in our broken, sinful hearts. We long for vengeance. Because it makes sense. Here's the problem. Again, our theology doesn't match our practice. How do you reconcile that? You cannot reconcile that to the person of Jesus. You can't. So instead we ignore it. We ignore it. We cover it up. We, we don't talk about those passages in the New Testament. We, we label ourselves and we go, you know, I'm just a justice-minded person. It's cool. You know, I just, I don't know, I just really care about right. I just, I just have like a mature sense of justice, you know, so I care about right and wrong. It's, it, you know, it's a thing. We try and take our heart of wrath and vengeance and like stamp godliness on it and just go, yeah, I just care about justice, you know. Okay, do you really care about justice? Or do you want that person to feel what you felt? I don't know. I want us to look, turn, turn over to Romans. Romans chapter 12. It's a famous chapter. We're going to read a part of it that's a little less famous. Paul is giving these, these aspects of kingdom life. If you have given yourself fully to the gospel and you've been affected by the work of Christ, these things will start to manifest in you. I'm going to start at the beginning of this section in verse 9, and you'll see where we're getting when we get there. But he says, Let your love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality. Each one of these things you hear and you're just like, yes, yes. Yes, like those are gospel things. Those are Jesus things. In verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. In verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord, to the contrary. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but beloved, overcome evil with good. Come on. Amen. Vengeance is mine, says God. Beloved, when you seek to avenge yourself, when you seek to balance your own ledger, you are putting yourself in the place of God and you were taking on a role that belongs to him and him alone. That is the height of idolatry. 
That is dethroning God and saying, God, I can seek justice better than you can. You obviously missed this one. Or whatever your judgment is, I don't like it. I can do better. I can make that person feel bad for their sin better than you can, so let me handle this one. Beloved, that is blasphemy. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. And let me tell you something. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a wrathful God. The vengeance that God gives for sin is intense. And it's more than you can do. Beloved, we, we do not want to put ourselves in the place of God. We don't. That's, that's his role. He's the one who avenges sin. He's the one who will balance the ledgers, who will justify the world, who will recreate everything perfect with no more sin. You don't need to do it. God's got it. Christ did that work on the cross. You get a different role. You get to actually love people. And I, I can't get past this. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Beloved, this is not a reference to passive-aggressive vengeance. It's not, hey, listen, you can, you can just love people. So when that guy rips you off and that person hurts you, you can just love them and they'll feel like a total jerk for being mean to you. <laughs> That's not what he's saying. The actual reference there, culturally, is saying, man, if you love that person who's wronged you, you can draw them to repentance. If you, if you love the person who has wronged you, if you look at the, the imbalance in your ledger and the injustice and you just say, I love you, I'm going to serve you, you can draw them to repentance. And they might actually experience the life and love of God that you've experienced. And they might experience the actual reconciliation to a holy God that you've experienced. And they might avoid the actual fearful wrath of an angry God. You might save their soul have a part in it. Come on. That is what we do with our vengeance. We throw it away because it's not ours. You cast it away. It's, it's blasphemous. It's anti-Christ. It's anti-gospel. What, what Christ calls you to is to love. To not regard them according to their flesh. To not treat them according to their sin. This is the way of the kingdom. And rather than leading to death, rather than escalating to this destructive, awful thing that blew out of proportion, it leads to repentance and life. Come on. How many of us, where would you be? Where would you be if God demanded justice of you? Come on. Come on. We can't get over some petty stuff. Pastor Sam, it's not petty. You don't know. Listen, I get it. The world is cursed and terrible, and people do some abominable things to each other. And I'm not trying to diminish the injustice you've experienced in your life. Because I've talked to a lot of you about it, and I know how atrocious it is. I know. I'm not trying to dismiss that. But man... If you live your life seeking to justify your own wrong, it will kill you. 
It will destroy you. It will rob you of who you are. There is no way, beloved, hear this. There is no way for you to live into your identity as a son or daughter of God to experience the abundance of kingdom life if you are demanding your own justice. You cannot hold both of those things in your hand. You can't. If you want to actually experience the life that Christ has called you to, you must let go of your vengeance. You must experience the weight of those wrongs done to you and love. You must. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.